Now, Father, there is much to learn from this text this morning, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes that have the capacity to see the glory of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us, I pray, Father. Give us what we cannot give ourselves. Give us the capacity to see your glory. And we give you all the praise for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen and amen. John chapter 2 this morning, we are looking at the miracle at the wedding, the Cana of Galilee, the turning water into wine. Now, I have an awful lot to cover, and so you're going to have to listen fast. Today, if you're a young man and, or a young woman and you want to get married, it's, it's a relatively uncomplicated deal. A young man will get permission from the girl's father, he buys the ring, he pops the question, and away they go. Done. (laughs) Old Testament times, however, was a little more complicated. We're going to talk about several things this morning, but the first thing we're going to talk about is the wedding. In the early Old Testament days, young people usually didn't have much much to say about who they would marry. Rather, the parents, actually, mostly the fathers, made that decision for them. For the young couple, it was really more a matter of will than romance. The axiom was kind of this, marriage first, love later. Believe it or not, this approach actually, historians say, created a far more stable relationship than the kind of relationships that are put together today. Instead of simply falling in and out of love, couples entered into marriage relationship as a willful act of submission to their parents and to the Lord And frankly, any relational problems that would arise in the marriage after all of that was far less traumatic than agreeing to to marry someone you don't hardly even know. And so couples tended to be more apt to work through their problems. And things were a little different in Jesus' day. The young man actually had something to say about the choice that he made in a bride. You might remember in John chapter 3, verse 29, where Jesus mentions the friend of the bridegroom. But that friend was so much more than just a friend. And he wasn't just the best man at the wedding. He was actually a negotiator on the part of the father of the groom and the groom himself. And he would negotiate with a representative from the girl's family. Not the father, but a representative of the girl's father. And what would they negotiate? They would negotiate price. How much was it going to cost? Because the groom was going to have to pay. Um, The friend of the bride made these arrangements, and this was all about compensation to the family for the loss of a worker. They were going to lose their daughter. And she was part of the family business. To lose that was going to cost them. Also, there was a dowry that had to be paid to the girl's father. It was known in Genesis 31 as the purchase price. The money was supposed to be laid aside and kept for the wife, the young bride, in case she were ever widowed or married. The father could invest it, he could spend the interest off of it however he wanted, but he had to keep that dowry safe for his daughter. Now, the payment for the bride could be made in the form of money, it could be made in the form of livestock, or if you're the groom uh, and you're poor, or maybe you're 
a, uh, an orphan, you don't have any parents, you're on your own for whatever reason, you could actually negotiate with the girl's father to work for your bride. And we see this with Jacob, right? In the book of Genesis, where uh, Jacob negotiated with Rachel's father to uh, get her hand in marriage. And the negotiated price, you remember, was seven years of hard labor for Rachel. And then when he woke up the morning after the wedding, he realized he'd married the wrong girl. So he went back to the father, and they got into an argument about how that happened, and he agreed to work seven more years for the right girl. It was the purchase price. In the case of David, when he went to marry King Saul's daughter, Michael, um, the purchase price was proof that David had killed a a hundred of Saul's enemies, the Philistines, which David was happy to do and did. In Jesus' day, the custom was a little bit different. Um, The custom was that part of the dowry paid to the father was made into kind of a golden string of coins, like a necklace. And those coins were kind of wrapped around the headdress of the woman on special occasions. It was a symbol. It was like a wedding ring that the girl, would, uh, the girl would wear on these special occasions to indicate that she was already married. It also served as financial security for the bride if she should ever need it, if she was ever divorced or widowed. And this is probably what Jesus was referring to. You remember in Luke chapter 19 when he told the parable of the woman who lost a coin and searched her house until she found it, anxiously searched her house. Why? It's part of the dowry. And it was the symbol that indicated that she was already married. It was very, very important. Um, Now, if you're a young man hearing all of this, all of these complicated, intricate instructions on how to find a girl and marry her, you might be thinking, good grief, it can't possibly be worth all of this effort. Well, let me assure you that if you were in this scenario, when when you got finished all the negotiating and paying and and signing contracts and all of that, and you're finally done, um, the marriage ceremony is still a long ways away. you got more to do. Um, Once the arrangements have all been made and the couple entered into the betrothal period, then you were set for the next year. This was a time that held far more significance than today's normal engagement. Today, if you can engage to a girl... uh, and you like her, and you're, let's say you're engaged for six months, if you get three months into it, and you decide you don't like her anymore, you can take back the ring and send her on her way, and, and nobody outside of you and her cares. However, if you are betrothed to a girl, and she is betrothed to you, the only way out of that contractual agreement is by divorce. As far as the family is concerned, as far as the community is concerned, the deal has already been made. Listen, there have been promises about money that would exchange hands, property, all kinds of things. It was all written down in legal documents. If you were going to undo that, it all had to be done legally, and that by divorce. And the only grounds for divorce was adultery. We see an example of this. We don't have time for you to turn there, but Matthew 1, 18 and 19, and it reads like this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. It appeared that she had committed adultery. 
And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away, that is, to divorce her secretly. So betrothal was a really big deal. It was a really big deal. It involved a legal contract that detailed the arrangement between the two fathers and no doubt included the specifics of the bride price and the dowry. And so needless to say, few people entered into betrothal without caution. Um, You were considered married when you got betrothed. Now the question is, how would a young man ever enter into betrothal. What did it look like for a man to enter into betrothal with the girl of his dreams? Well, like I said, it was pretty complex. There were documents to fill out, but at the end of the day, what he would do is he would show up at the girl's door, he would knock on the door, she would come out, he would hand her a gift, and he would say to her these words, by this, you are set apart for me according to the law of Moses and Israel. And here's your gift, which is why I tell my daughters, don't ever accept a gift from a young man, not even at church. You have no idea what you're getting into. Now, some of you young people may be asking, after all of this, can we finally get around to the ceremony and cake and honeymoon? Well, not exactly. Before the actual wedding ceremony, there is a prescribed waiting period. And it usually lasted, are you ready for this? 12 months. During which time, you were hardly even allowed to see each other except at public occasions. But this would actually be a good thing for you. Because if you're the groom, you now have a whole year to find a piece of land, to buy a piece of land, and to build for your wife-to-be and yourself a house with your own bare hands. And what would the woman be doing during this period of time? Well, if she's wealthy, she's going to spend the entire year making wedding garments which is really interesting. If you go into Jesus' parables and you see him talking about the kingdom, and one of those parables talks about the kingdom being like a wedding feast, in fact, more than one, and the problem was some people got into the wedding feast and they weren't dressed properly. Remember that? And the groom came and he found these people who were in and he said, why aren't you in wedding clothes? And it turns out they had snuck in and they were cast out to that place where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus again and again used the analogy and the the symbolism, the specific details of a Hebrew wedding to talk about the kingdom of God and salvation and what it's like to be married, as it were, saved by entering into covenant relationship with God in Christ. The marriage clothing actually symbolized being wrapped in robes of righteousness. And it was provided for you by the groom and by his bride. Well, after the year of preparation, it was finally time for the wedding ceremony and the feast. The bride was then literally adorned like a queen. She was bathed and her hair was braided with as many precious stones as the family possessed or could borrow. She was made queen for the day. And more importantly, however, even though in our day the focus is always almost exclusively on the bride. In a Hebrew wedding, it wasn't that way. Much was made of the bride, but not nearly as much as the groom. The groom was the center of attention. And what a perfect picture it is of God's relationship with Israel and Christ's relationship with the church. But let's think about his covenant with Israel. We look all the way back in the the, uh, Old Testament prophet Ezekiel 
16, 8 through 13, and here's what we find. We find God talking about how he entered this relationship with Israel. And this, the, listen to the marriage symbolism here. He says this, Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you are at the time of love. And so I spread my skirt over you. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you that you would become mine, declares the Lord. Then I bathed you with water and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown upon your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your dress was fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, and so were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. That was God's picture of Israel, his love for his people. Very similar to what Paul describes in the church, Christ's relationship to the church in Ephesians 5. But in the Old Testament, there's another description, Isaiah 61, 10, where the author says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. Watch this. As a bridegroom decks himself with garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. That's where Jesus gets the analogy. The wedding was a symbol of God's love for his people. God's adoration for the one that he would sacrifice so much to save. Well, now, on the day of the wedding, the bride and the groom would then come together before their family and friends. A blessing would be said over them by a local rabbi, and the great feast would begin. Then in the late day, that first day, the bride would steal away to her parents' house, and the groom would steal away to his parents' house, and they would wait until it got dark. And after dark, the wedding party would all come into the streets and, and kind of make a path from the groom's house to the bride's house. And they would come out with little lamps of oil. You remember Jesus talking about the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. They all came out with these little oil lamps and they waited for the groom to make his debut. He would come out of, the, out of his parents' house. And when he finally did come outside, and by the way, just... To add to the suspense, I think sometimes the groom would just wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. And that's kind of what Jesus says in his parable about the bridegroom coming out and the ten virgins are waiting and some of them run out of oil. Why? Because he waited longer than they expected. It's an image of Jesus coming from his father's house to collect us, his bride. It's taking longer than we thought. And his exhortation is, be patient and be prepared. In any case, when the long-awaited uh, time finally came, the groom would emerge from his house, his father's house, and his parents' house, and uh, the crowds would erupt in cheers in, and follow him in joyful procession from his parents' house all the way through town to the bride's house. 
And then when they got to the bride's house, the bride would come out. She'd be wearing a veil. They would take off the veil from her. They would actually fold it up and put it over the groom's shoulder. And they would make a proclamation. Those of you who know the Old Testament will like this. The declaration was this. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Now that's worth some study, isn't it? Now we won't go into that. But the whole procession then would follow them from the bride's house to wherever their new house was. They would, all, uh, they would all walk down the street and there would be singing and there would be dancing and there would be all of these people with their oil lamps. The Song of Solomon even talks about the wife in, in that book, the bride, who would sing and dance all the way to her husband's house. It was a joyful time. And there would be their home probably for the rest of their lives. But that wasn't the end. That was merely the beginning. Because next morning, they would come out of their own home and they would go to the place where the feasting had begun the day before. And they would join their family and friends for a week. And there would be more singing and more food and more festivities. And most importantly of all, wine. Now, all of this I offer to you merely as introduction to what we are going to look at today, because I want, you to, I want to kind of set the stage for what's taking place here in John chapter 2. We've seen now the wedding. Let's just refresh for a few minutes on the wine. It's interesting to note here that John begins his story toward the end of the week, This week-long wedding feast, if they ran out of wine, he certainly wouldn't have run out of wine on the first day. Nobody would have been that bad a planner. But later on in the week, sometime, they would have run out of wine. So surely Jesus is, is doing his miracle toward the end of this week of festivities. And John assumes that we understand what weddings in Jerusalem or in the in the Old Testament Jewish culture were like, and so he doesn't bother to explain any of that, and that's why I felt compelled to share all of this with you. The important thing that, that John has in mind is not who is getting married, but what Jesus does at their wedding. And so he doesn't tell us anything about the wedding. He doesn't even tell us who's getting married. We don't even know who the families were, because the most important thing was not who was getting married, but what Jesus does while he's there. Now, by this time, Jesus had no doubt come to be known as a bright young rabbi. He may have been invited to the wedding to be the one who pronounced the blessing on um, the bride and groom. From the previous chapter, we know that he wasn't alone. He came with his disciples, except there aren't 12 of them yet. There's only five. And they are, according to John 1, they are Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. So he has five disciples, and they're with him. They're together. They've all been invited to the wedding. Another key character in this story is Mary. And I want you to notice as we go through the book of John that Mary is never called Mary. She's always in the book of John called the mother of Jesus. And I suspect there may be a reason for that. It's almost as if John is being very careful not to give Mary any undue attention. His goal is not to exalt Mary as so many in our world do, but rather to exalt Jesus. Mary is not the Messiah. Jesus is. Mary is not the Savior of the world. 
Jesus is. Mary is not the mediator or the high priest of our souls. Jesus is. This is all about Christ. Now, it's important also to note, however, that Mary is either a relative of the couple getting married, or she's at least got a very, very close friendship. Now, why do we think that? We think that's the case because apparently nobody else at the wedding knew that they'd run out of wine. There would have been a a few core people who were in charge, the wedding planners perhaps, who would have known that they had run out of wine. We wonder even if the bride and groom knew at this point that they had run out of wine. But one thing we do know, Mary knew. So she must have been really, really close to the inner circle of this family. And so Mary is faced with this problem. And I don't think Mary has any clue what to do with it. And so she does the only thing she knows. She comes to the most resourceful person she has ever known in her life, namely Jesus, her son. Verse 3. Hang on. Make sure I've got this right. That's right. Verse 3. Let's start with verse 1. On the third day, when the we- uh, was, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, last week, we spent the whole time together trying to understand what the big deal was about not having any wine. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but let's just review very briefly. The reason that it was so important was because at the wedding, especially at a wedding, the symbolism was really, really important. So what did wine symbolize? Number one, and most importantly, wine symbolized the blessing of God. And last week I showed you many scriptures out of the prophets in the Old Testament that talk about God being faithful to his covenant from Sinai, from Mount Sinai, where he gave the Ten Commandments, his covenant to Moses and to Israel. And he promised to his bride, if you obey me, if you keep your heart hot for me, if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I will bless you. I'll bless you when you come in. I'll bless you when you go out. I'll bless your flocks and your herds and your wives and your children. There will be nothing but blessing. And one of the signs that my blessing is being poured out on you is that the very mountains will drip with sweet wine. Your vineyards will blossom and produce fruit like nothing you've ever seen before. That was his promise. It was a a sign of blessing. Secondly, it was a sign of joy. It was a sign of joy. Remember last week we talked about the axiom of the rabbis who said there cannot be joy except with wine. Why? Because wine was a symbol of God's blessing. And if God is blessing you, how could you be anything but joyful? The third thing that wine symbolized was love. We looked at Song of Solomon. We have this this, um, exaltation, this, this glorying in the wonder of marital love. A husband and wife getting married, spending their first night together, and repeatedly they say, this is better than sweet wine. It's better than sweet wine. It was a symbol of love. And what a perfect illustration to have 
kind of as, as uh, the, the main theme of your wedding is the blessing of God, which is produced uh, in joy, it results in joy and expressed in marital love. It was all about the blessing of God on this bride and groom. But there was another symbol that was used with wine, and that was not the blessing of God, but the wrath of God. Because he told his wife, God did, when he, quote, married Israel, when he entered covenant with Israel, yes, I will bless you, but if you give your heart to other men, to other gods, you will be cursed. I will curse you when you come in. I will curse you when you go out. Your flocks are going to be cursed. Your children are going to be cursed. Your wives are going to be cursed. They're just going to be nothing but cursing. And you will be taken from the land. And one of the ways they would see that initially, first of all, was that God was going to destroy the crops. And the wine will run dry. And so, when we come to the wedding and we look at the symbolism here, um, it's likely that the groom at this wedding was not from a wealthy family. That's probably why there was insufficient wine to begin with. They couldn't just go out and buy more. This was a difficult situation. It was a very difficult situation because wine drying up, curse of God, it's exactly what happened at the wedding. And if the guests were to discover it, believe me, the symbolism would not have been missed. Why in the mystery of God's providence would he have ordained for this couple to experience this trial? Why would he dry up the wine? Perhaps they've sinned secretly. Perhaps God's curse is upon this family. As I said last week, this could have stigmatized this young couple for the rest of their lives. Everywhere they went, anyone who had been a part of that community would have said, oh yeah, that's that couple that God has cursed for some unknown reason. It would have been a scandal. And you know what? Jesus' mother knew it. She knew the gravity of the situation. But what was to be done? What was to be done? It's doubtful that, that the family could have produced more wine. Where would they get it? They couldn't just go buy more. So what was anyone to do? Well, thankfully, Mary had the presence of mind, as I said, to turn to the most resourceful person she'd ever known, Jesus. Jesus. It's amazing. You know, I don't think that she was asking him to do a miracle. I just think there are, there are sometimes people in our lives, you get to know them and you think, this person's incredible. Any problem I present, they come up with an answer. Any, any issue that I get into, I can go to this person, and somehow they're able to think through it, they're able to plan through it. It's the most resourceful person I've ever known in my life. And, and just, just add into that that Jesus was not subject to the noetic effect of sin. That is, it didn't affect his mind because he was sinless. Imagine how Jesus could think Imagine how many times after Joseph's death, Mary ran into a problem and didn't know what to do. And Jesus said, might I suggest this? Have we thought of doing that? Resourcefulness. Glorious resourcefulness. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. 
We've seen the wedding, the wine. Let's talk about the winemaker. Who is Jesus? Verses 3 and 4, once again. When their wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now watch Jesus' response. And Jesus said to her, Woman, (laughs) what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. It's kind of a cryptic response. Apparently, she understood. This is a really interesting exchange to us between Jesus and his mother. I mean, scholars have struggled to make sense out of this for centuries. Was Mary asking Jesus to perform a miracle? And why does he call her woman? And what does he mean by my hour has not yet come? Well, as I said, it seems clear to me that Jesus is responding to Mary um, in a unique way. And I don't think he's asking her to do a miracle. But Jesus' response in calling her woman is less than personal. The term woman is polite. It's, it's not hostile. It's not, it's not disrespectful in any way. It's polite, but somehow also indicates that he views his relationship with Mary as something different than mother-child. Something has changed recently. He had lived in submission to her his whole life. Who knows how long Joseph had been gone. He was living in submission to a single parent. But now things have changed. His public ministry had begun. He'd been baptized. God had spoken out of the clouds. He'd been tempted uh, by Satan in the wilderness. He now has five disciples. He's about to launch his public ministry. Earthly relationships would no longer determine his actions. No longer would mother say, go, handle this problem, and Jesus say, yes, ma'am. Now it's, woman, remember things have changed. Things have changed. He is no longer to be thought of as Mary's son. He is now to be thought of as Mary's Lord. Furthermore, Jesus says to her, my hour has not yet come. We don't have time to go into this um, as thoroughly as we perhaps should. Let me just give you a little insight into this. This is the first time he uses this in the book of John, but he'll repeat it again and again. My hour has not come. My hour has not come. And and as you're reading the gospel, you're thinking, okay, what's your hour? What's your hour? What's your hour? My hour has not come. My hour has not come. My hour has not come. And then finally at the end of the gospel, he finally sets his face toward Jerusalem. He knows he's going to get crucified. And when he's approaching Jerusalem, he says... Now my hour has come. It is, time, it is time for the Son of Man to be glorified. In what way? The cross. The cross. To Jesus, that was the ultimate glorification. Because that was the culmination of the whole reason he was alive on earth. He had come as the Messiah. He had a purpose to fulfill. He was the Lamb of God who could only take away the sin of the world by his own sacrifice. And when that happened, his hour had come. And so, you know, you you have to think about this. I think, as I've pondered this over the last couple of weeks, I, I just imagine Mary and Jesus, and putting on your sanctified imagination here, Imagine Mary and Jesus living in the same house together. There were other children. There were other brothers and sisters. We know from the New Testament there were other brothers and sisters. 
And so here was this, this family of children with a single mom. And um, can you imagine the private conversations that Jesus and Mary must have enjoyed? I mean, she must have, she must have talked with him again and again and reminded herself about the angels and the shepherds and the wise men and Gabriel showing up in her kitchen. How do you ever forget that? And then there was, there was Simeon and Anna and the things that they said. And then there was God's voice specifically coming through the prophet Gabriel once again to Joseph, telling him, flee with the child. All of this, she knew who he was. She knew that he was Messiah. Can you imagine the conversations they must have had? And I suspect that in his earlier years, Mary knew his hour would come. And she knew what that hour was. Simeon even told her, a sword will pierce your side too. I think she knew what the hour was. I don't think anybody else did. It's almost as if Jesus is, is speaking, kind of using a code to tell Mary, don't ask me to put on a show here. My hour has not come. I'm not doing anything public, even to save this poor couple. I'm not going to do anything big here. I'm not going to show myself as Messiah. Please don't ask me, woman. Don't ask me. It's not time for me to be glorified. And think about this. You see, Jesus had an agenda. He had very important things to do. He had come as Messiah, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. And he had a very detailed plan that the Father had given him to accomplish that. There would be a time. There would come a time for him to show Israel that he was God. There was going to come a time when he would stand before Lazarus' tomb and pray to the Father out loud so everyone could hear him in preparation for raising Lazarus from the dead. And then he called out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man rose to life. There'll be time for that. There would be time when he would come to uh, the Mount of Olives and to the valley in between, and all the people would lay down palm branches in their jackets and they would cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That time would come, but not today. Not today. Jesus' response to his mother, his mother's request, implicit request here, his response may sound like, no. But here's the thing. Mary trusted him. I don't think she had a clue what he was going to do. But she trusted him. And so she turns away from him and says to the servants, listen, whatever he says to you, just do it. Isn't that great? Whatever he says to you, do it. Now let's watch what Jesus does. Verses 6 through 10. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. 
containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. That may have been the best wine he had ever tasted in his life. And he had no idea where it came from. He thought the bridegroom gave it to him. But it wasn't him. We've seen the wedding, the wine, the winemaker. And now, beloved, behold, the wonder. This is Jesus' first miracle. It was most likely his most discreet miracle of all of his miracles. There's no grand display. There's no public declaration. There's no adoring crowds. There's no angry Pharisees. In fact, no one but the disciples and the servants have any thought that Jesus is doing anything except sitting with his disciples enjoying the wedding. There's conversation. Everyone is in conversation Jesus isn't doing anything unusual. He's not drawing attention to himself. I mean, all he did was say two short sentences. Number one, fill the water pots with water. Number two, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. That's it. That's all he did. That is the extent. I mean, that is is the fullness of what Jesus did to perform this miracle. I mean, he didn't even get out of his chair. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't say, watch this, look what I can do. So who knew about the miracle? Not Mary. She'd figure it out pretty quick. Not the guests, not the bride, not the groom. Nobody had to be more surprised than the groom. What are you talking about, the best wine? I mean, doesn't it seem, seem strange to you? A quiet, discreet, subtle, invisible miracle. I mean, wasn't the whole point of Jesus' miracles to show the world what God is like? To show the world that he himself is God, their Messiah? And most of the time that is indeed the case, but not today. So what was the point of the miracle? It's taken us a long time to get here, but it'll be worth it. I think the answer is found in the water jars. In the water jars. Watch this. John tells us there are six stone pots or jars. And the detail here is important. John is telling us detail. That's a clue. That's a clue to us. Why is he get, who cares how many water b- bottles there were? He not only tells us how many there were, but how many each could hold. Roughly 20 to 30 gallons of water each. That means that what Jesus provided this poor couple in their moment of distress, do the math. Either 
120 or 180 gallons of the best wine anyone had ever tasted. And was that enough for the feast? Are you kidding? The feast was almost over. There was more than enough for everyone to drink freely and enough for there to be such a surplus. This would have been a huge, extravagant wedding gift. And they wouldn't have even known where it came from. They could have taken that wine, sold it. Who knows what they did with it? It was probably the most lavish gift they'd received at that wedding. Beloved, do you get the point of the miracle? And we've said again and again in this church, whenever you study a passage of Scripture, your first question should not be, what does this text mean for my marriage or my parenting or my business? The first question I should ask is, what does this text tell me about God? And do you know what this text tells about God? It tells us that Jesus is no stingy Savior. He is not holding out on us. He's not giving us crumbs. It tells us that the Messiah loves to lavish us with grace upon grace. It tells us that even though Jesus is the creator who is the light and the life and God in human flesh, even though he is king of kings and lord of lords who is worthy of worship and worthy of adoration and praise, yet he delights to give good things to his people. He loves to bless us. He is always, always, always the giver. He's always the giver. Listen, even when we suffer, he is the giver. He is the giver. And every time we give, we only give what he first gave us. He is always the giver. We give back to him. It is only because he first gave us so that we would have resources to give back to him. We serve someone else. It's a gift from God to us for them. He is always the giver. And even when we suffer, it is grace upon grace. God is exposing our sin so that it can be forgiven and so that we can be transformed. Is that not what we tell our children before we spank them? This is grace to you. God is exposing your sin. This is why Jesus came. He loves you. And he doesn't want want you to, to die because of your sin. He wants you to live in the lavish joy of his presence forever and forever. It's grace. Why did he turn the water into wine? Here's the answer. Because he loved this young couple. He loved their families, and he didn't want them to be embarrassed on their wedding day. He could have ignored the need, but he didn't. Before any of the wedding guests even knew there was a problem, Jesus met the need. He did it secretly and profoundly and abundantly and lavishly. And we have no indication that in this story that anybody ever figured out where it came from. We'll talk about one group next week who knew. But I'll save that for you. Now, if you have eyes to see, if you are a child of God, 
And you will see this played out in your own life again and again and again. God does things. God does things. And sometimes they strike you as, as amazing and unexpected and really unnecessary. And yet he, he does them to bless us. And if you have, you, you have eyes to see it, you'll glory in it. You will wonder at such a Savior as this. I'll tell you on occasion this happened to me recently. I was preparing the mission team for our trip to Ukraine. Okay, so those of you who are on that team can start laughing now. I had sat down with them and I told them, listen, first meeting, most important thing, make sure your passports are current. And um, if you don't have one, get one, get one immediately. If you have one, make sure it's current. And then I told them the story about my sister-in-law who was taking her children to Europe for uh, a trip. And, um, and she looked at her passport and said, oh, okay, closed it. The day before she left, she opened it and realized it's expired. I, I didn't see it right when I looked at it. It's expired, and we're to leave tomorrow. And so everyone else got on the plane and went to Europe. She got on a plane and went to San Diego the day before. Because there's a place in San Diego where you can walk in, take your passport and say, I need one fast. And get back on the plane, fly back to Oklahoma City, and then to New York and to Europe. I mean, can you imagine the cost? And so I told that story, and I said, so let's not have anyone who messes with their passport. Who didn't look at their passport? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, a couple months go by, and I was walking past the place in our home where where we keep all these documents, and I pulled out my passport, and I thought, oh, I better look at this. And I, I opened it, and I looked at it, and... I would have sworn it said 2013, April 2013. I said, oh, I did the same thing my sister-in-law did. Closed it and put it back in. And, uh, and three weeks before we left, I get a call. And Michelle Kafer, who handles all of our travel arrangements, had asked for copies of all of our, all of our passports. She had had them for weeks and weeks. But one day, she got up. I don't know what she was doing. She opened the file and thought, I'm just going to look through these passport copies. And she came to mine. And she called me. And she said, hey, Pastor Dan, if you wouldn't mind sending me that little card that you have to put in the back of your passport that says you've updated this passport and it's current. And I said, what card? What's the problem? She said, well, your passport's expired. And I said, well, no, it's not. I looked at it. And she said, no, 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 I have a copy of it right here. And I said, oh, that's the problem. You have a photocopy. It's not clear. I looked at it with my own eyes. It was as clear as day. It's April 2013. And she said, I'm looking at a digital copy, and it's pretty clear. (laughs) It says April 2012. You don't have three months left. You're almost a year expired. And in my heart, I panicked. (laughs) I felt like this groom. What do you mean? Out of wine. Who, Who was supposed to take care of the wine? Me. Oh, no. I am toast. I don't know what I'm going to do. I called our team leader, Eric, and I said, he said, hey, brother, how's it going? And I said, you have the stupidest friend on the face of the earth. You're not going to believe what I, what I just did. And I told him about it, and he said, don't panic. He said, I have connections in Washington, D.C., and I'll call you back, and we'll see if we can get this fixed. He called me back. 
And he said, not a problem. You can get this back in one week and still have two weeks to spare before this trip. And so, give me instructions, and we did it. And I went out to my car, and I sat in my car, and just relief just flooded me. And, and I sat there, and I, and I kind of looked up in the sky, and I thought, Lord, why did, why did you have Michelle open that file on a lark? And, I mean, she, she could have looked at the comic strips that day, and she chose to look at our passport copies. Why? You know what the answer is? Because he loves me. He didn't want me to be embarrassed when I showed up at the ticket counter with a passport that was going to keep me from going on this trip. It was going to break up the team. It was going to set them in a bad mood before they left. Listen, he loves us. And he loves to do good things for us. He loves to bail us out of difficult situations. That's what he did when he saved us. We were in an impossible situation. And Christ said, fill the pots, draw the water. I'll take care of the rest. Because he loves us. Isn't that amazing? Are you amazed by that? Do you see the wonder of this, my friend? This is who Jesus is. This is who God is. What's your view of God? What's your view of God? Some of you, when you think of God, you think of the judge, the lawkeeper, and he is that. He's the lawgiver. He expects his law to be kept. And none of us do. And we all know it. And so the temptation for some of us is to look back at God and go, don't judge me today. You're going to judge me today. I know you're going to judge me today. Don't judge me today. And God is saying, why would I judge you? I've already poured out all my wrath, all of it, every last drop of the wine of the cup of my wrath, I poured it out on my son. There's nothing left. I have no more wrath for you. It's gone. I have nothing but grace upon grace upon grace. I'm your father, not your judge. I'm your father, not your judge. What is your view of God? And too many of us have a distorted view of God. I had a friend of mine in Florida. I used to go down there and work at a camp every year. And he had this song called, God's Gonna Get You For That. (laughs) And I don't remember all of it and I won't sing it. And there's one line that says, there's no place to run and hide because he knows where you're at. God's going to get you for that. And you know what? For a lot of us, that's our practical theology. God's going to get you for that. No, he won't. Not if the word of God is true. Not if Christ came to die on the cross as his word says. He already got his son. He crushed him on our behalf. Do you see it, my friend? This is who Jesus is. One day he will come to judge every sinner who rejects this lavish gift of grace. He will judge. But today, you are the bride or you are the groom. And no matter what situation you find yourself in, He's there.
There is no wrath. There is only provision. There is grace. There is mercy. There is loving kindness. And the Word of God tells us again and again that our God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He is the lover of your soul. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He is the covenant-keeping God who delights to fulfill his promises to bless us by his grace, even though you deserve wrath. Beloved, all I'm saying is look deeply into this experience this this story of extravagant grace and behold your God. He gives. He is the giver. And he gives because he loves. Have you ever thought of the reality that if there were no God, there would be no love? Because love comes from God. If you were in a desert and you had a well and it was the only one around that you could ever reach, there would be no water if it weren't for that well. But if it was a well that overflowed in abundance, everyone would have plenty of water to share with one another, but there would be no water without the well. There would be no love if there were not God because God is love. And everyone who loves is loved by God. And here's what the Word of God says, John 3.16. In the Greek, it reads like this. In this manner, God loved the world. He gave his Son, the only one, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves, therefore, God gives. Do not think that God is all about making demands and cares nothing for your needs or your desires. That is not the God of the Bible. My favorite verse in the New Testament is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered delivered us up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us what? All things... You say, what's the all things? What do you need? What do you need? Sometimes what we need is to be spanked. And he's gracious to give it. And sometimes what we need is to be rescued. And he happily gives it. Sometimes what we need is financial relief. And he provides it. Sometimes it's a a family because you're an orphan like we saw in the baptism today with Masha. And he gives. He gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. Paul told the philosophers at the Agropolis, God is not one who who dwells in a temple made by human hands. Nor does he need anything because he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. Nobody can serve God as if he needs anything. He's always the giver. He's always the giver. He always gives 
what we need, and he gives it in abundance. And so the only question is, how will you respond to this lavish giver? Will you believe him? Will you trust him with your life, your circumstances, your eternity? Will you train your eyes to see his good gifts and praise him even when life is hard? Because he is so good. That's the question. Beloved, I want you to look at this passage and I want you to see a wonderful, glorious, bountiful, gift-giving, treasure-sharing Savior. He loves you. And it doesn't matter how you feel. And so John says this. These things I have written to you that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you will find life in his name. Want to know how the story ends? Here's how John says it. Verse 11. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples, all five of them, believed. You see John's point? The implicit question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to say we believe. Sometimes our Formal theology doesn't line up with our functional theology. And so, Father, I pray that you would help anyone in this room who has consistently struggled with a wrong view of God, thinking of him as their judge. Father, change their theology. Change the way they think about you. Align their heart and their mind with your word and show them Their sin isn't greater than God. Their disobedience is not something that is too big for Jesus to have rescued them from. Oh, Father, be glorified in communicating to each one that you are the glorious, glorious, abundant Savior. Oh, Father, we are privileged to belong to you. We praise you. Help us, Father, to worship you today with lives of obedience and joyful offerings of praise to you, making hard decisions against our flesh that desires the things of the flesh and wars with the Spirit. Oh, Father, help us today. And because we belong to you, and no good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so we give you praise and thanksgiving for it all. In Jesus' name.